It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. We, we intend to give you a very fine program, so just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment. 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 Hey, welcome back to a special edition of Miked Up on OM Radio. This is your daily COVID-19 news update for Lowcountry listeners. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden. Today's date, it's Thursday, April 2nd, and the time of this recording, it's 5.48 a.m. Again, I'm giving you that timestamp because news may have shifted by the time you hear this recording. I'm excited for you to hear today's show. Following my news update, I want you to stay tuned for my exclusive interview with iconic local leader, Reverend Nelson B. Rivers III. Reverend Rivers is the recipient of South Carolina's highest honor, the Order of the Palmetto. I sought out his perspective because I know he has a long, distinguished track record with organizing communities both during and following catastrophe and some of our state's darkest times. So please stay tuned for that. But before that interview, um, I want to bring something to your attention. The other day, DHEC sent out a very curious tweet, a tweet that left me scratching my head. Um, And watching the news last night, I was reassured to know that I wasn't the only one left with a few questions. Take a listen to this. That's right, Brendan. After days of being able to look up confirmed COVID-19 cases by zip code, that service is no longer available. And today, local leaders are fighting back, asking state health officials to put that website back up. I think DHEC is creating chaos by all of a sudden saying maybe the public can't be responsible with this data, which is sort of the tone of the message they put out today on their Twitter account. And Mayor Haney says it adds insult to injury that the service had been available for days. We have to have an idea of where we are on that curve. I mean, it's hard to flatten it when you're not allowed to really see the curve. It's hard when you start giving out that kind of information to uh, the citizens. It's hard to then take it away especially right in the middle of an emergency. And what we need right now is uh, stability and we need order. Mayor Greg Habib of Goose Creek also weighed in on how valuable the testing numbers are. Shout out to Hannah Powers from our local NBC News affiliate, Channel News 2. It was great to hear Mayor uh, Haney of Mount Pleasant echoed the sentiments of so many people, uh, residents and reporters who've been pushing back on DHEC's tweet. I'm going to go ahead and read the tweet to you from DHEC. This was up about a day or so ago. Um, It reads, the desire to obtain details about where infected people are known to be has become a disturbing distraction because it suggests that there are still individuals who don't understand the potential threat for exposure for anyone and the need for everyone to take precautions. And if you go to Twitter, the tweet is still up. You'll see local reporters, you'll see local folks just weigh in and just push back on that. You know, folks need to be armed with as much information as possible. Every day I rely on DHEC stats to update you all. So you're armed with information so you can act accordingly. We do already know, right, to help flatten the curve, we need to stay at home and minimize trips outside of the house and and practice social distancing. But with recent uptick in numbers, you know, folks need to know where these hot spots are, where these, you know, where these um, pockets of outbreaks might be, where if they're concentrated or not. And I think um, it's great to hear local leaders, elected officials really weigh in because that's how that that number 
those statistics help inform the policies and the rules that they may mandate. So, um, again, shout out to Mayor Habib from Goose Creek and Mayor Haney from Mount Pleasant. Well, let me get you caught up on the numbers. So according to DHEC's website, these numbers were updated as recently as uh, 3.56 p.m. yesterday, April 1st, Wednesday. Uh, so currently, we, we just saw our highest single day reporting of coronavirus cases. And that's such a such a sad thing to see. But we're seeing so many. So we had as many as 210 reported cases yesterday. That brings our state total to 1,293 total positive cases for COVID-19. And um, unfortunately, that has meant 26 deaths. So we saw four uh, new um, recorded deaths yesterday. So um, now I'm going to pivot to the issue of PPEs. Given the uptick in coronavirus infection numbers, given the uptick in, in local data, um, it makes you think about, again, those workers on the front lines, our healthcare professionals who are putting themselves at risk for infection just to keep so many of us safe. Uh, take a listen to this bit of reporting. It's infuriating and it's terrifying. It's like going into a building on fire without anything to protect you. One low country nurse told us anonymously today that she believes her health is on the line while she's saving lives. According to her, she says it's because the hospital she works at isn't protecting the staff like some other hospitals across the country. They're making a safe assumption that everybody's positive and therefore gowning and protecting themselves appropriately. Which includes gowns, hair bonnets, a face shield, a surgical mask over an N95 respirator mask, and gloves. But the nurse tells me that hasn't been the case for her when she's been seeing a symptomatic patient. The only thing being worn is a surgical mask by the patient and a surgical mask by the nurse. So this nurse tried to take matters into her own hands and protect herself from potential cases she was looking at by wearing her N95. She tells me she was told to take it off, that it's only for confirmed cases. But in the moment, it's unlikely to know who could be positive because tests take time to come back. Uh, that reporting came courtesy of Danielle Seda from our local NBC News affiliate, Channel News 2. Um, it, it's great to hear our healthcare professionals speak up and speak out. I'm seeing more and more folks, either doctors or nurses, caregivers, take to social media or reach out to local press to, to expose certain conditions or to bring light to certain challenges that we may not be privy to. Um, so it was great to hear that bit of reporting. Um, and just so you know, we did receive a shipment of PPEs. The state just received a shipment of PPEs as of yesterday. I took to YouTube and I found a clip that featured our U.S. Army National Guard, um, our soldiers from that unit, and um, the Joint Task Force 59. They were seen processing a shipment from our uh, strategic national stockpile. So PPEs are on the way to various counties throughout the state. That's reassuring. Hopefully, this means that uh, hospitals and other uh, healthcare facilities will not have to ration masks and, and gowns and other equipment. I'm, I'm assuming that's why that nurse was given the directive not to wear masks, maybe perhaps because there's a limited quantity. However, 
she had a point like you don't know who's infected with the coronavirus so why go and consult with a patient and expose yourself um you might as well err on the side of caution and i again i i get that the hospital may be stuck between a rock and a hard place but i'd prefer my healthcare professionals to be armed to the teeth with whatever we have or whatever whatever is available excuse me um in the you know to prevent infection because if our healthcare professionals go down Lord, what will we do next, right? Um, so again, it was great to see that our U.S. National, uh, excuse me, our U.S. Army National Guard soldiers were processing that shipment of PPEs. Um, I want to shift to a story that's on the front page of today's Post and Courier. It's regarding uh, the city of North Charleston. Um, there have been several cities in South Carolina who have issued stay-at-home uh, orders. North Charleston has yet to do so. I'm going to read to you the headline um, for this morning. Again, it's uh, April 2nd, the cover of the Post and Courier. It reads, Finding Balance in Crisis. As cities issue stay-at-home orders, North Charleston follows the state's lead. Um, as many of you all know, we have McMaster, our Governor McMaster has yet to issue a stay-at-home um, order for the entire state. He has definitely closed down non-essential businesses. He's closed beaches and lakes. And so he's taken some measures. Um, however, we are not ordered to stay at home, at least not from our governor. And so it, it looks like uh, Mayor Sumney over in North Charleston is basically following um, our governor's lead. I'm going to read just uh, maybe the first paragraph or two. This article was written by Ricky Siafa Dennis Jr. from the Post and Courier. Uh, it states, an effort to limit the spread of the coronavirus in South Carolina, several municipalities have ordered residents to stay home. Charleston, Columbia, and Mount Pleasant, three of the state's top five most populated cities, have instructed residents to stay at, at their residences with, expect, with exceptions for essential businesses. So, yeah, North Charleston is yet to do that. However, I want you to take a listen to this clip. This was um, this was reported yesterday from the city of North Charleston regarding the measures that they are taking in lieu of telling folks to stay at home. So listen in. Our neighborhood resource officers will go out to each and every facility. And with the mayor's office, we've actually created a form. This form will have that officer's name, and badge number and contact information. That also actually will go to the door, ask for the manager or the owner to come outside, speak with that manager or the owner and actually give them as much information as they can as the police officer about that we are here out in the streets, we're working. If there's a need to call us, you can call us anytime. That was North Charleston Chief of Police, Reggie Burgess. Uh, he was outlining the new measures taken by the North Charleston Police Department where neighborhood resource officers would visit assisted living facilities and other like retirement residential facilities to check up on elderly residents um, and to give them information and, and a little leaflet that they were handing out that included information from the CDC and the local city government. Uh, he gave this information out yesterday alongside Mayor Sumney. Again, Mayor Sumney is waiting to um, hear from Governor McMaster before he issues a stay-at-home order for the city of North Charleston. So that was a little bit of, of breaking news from yesterday from the city of North Charleston. All right, so now I want to play my interview with Reverend Nelson Rivers. Um, I really hope you enjoy this, and I'll come back on the other side of this interview with a little bit more information. So tune in. 
Okay, hello, Reverend Nelson Rivers. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Sister Gatton. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for making time. I think that um, uh, my daily updates, I'd be remiss if I didn't include the voices of folks like yourself, uh, legendary figures who have uh, paved, the w paved the way for people like me. And so um, I am honored that you have time to speak with me regarding recovery efforts following um, this pandemic crisis. I'm honored that you're honored and I, uh, I follow you as much as you may think other people follow me. So I commend you for your work ahead of time. I really like the fact that you found your own voice that doesn't always seek validation from my generation or any generation. And I tell, I used to tell Muadim the Baha was a good close friend and mentee. And man, I can't speak for you, but I can use my fire to light yours. I can support you, but I am never going to publicly condemn or criticize you for using your voice. I, you have a perspective I don't have, and it would be foolish of me to try to expect you to have my perspective. And he respected that. We mutually respected one another. We never fell into the deal of folk trying to pit us one against others. So the same for you, sister. You do what you do. You do it for this season. You've been called to this work for this time. And don't let anyone turn you around, including yourself. Oh man, you know I'm getting emotional. That's amazing. Thank you so much. I I really appreciate yes, that. Um, appreciate you. Oh man. Um. So, um, as someone who I, I love to leverage the archive to help support my activist work, um, and and this radio show is no exception. And so this this past weekend, I spent um, a significant amount a significant amount of time sifting through what was our response to uh, Hurricane Hugo here in the Charleston Low Country area. And I know that the pandemic to some may not resemble the same kind of devastation of a Hugo because that was a physical devastation. However, um, we can all anticipate and we've already seen economic devastation here in Charleston. And so with our national elected officials crafting um, you know, legislation and stimulus packages, we know that there will be some resources coming here. I wanted to, to reach out to you because I wanted to know more about your work after Hugo and why did you prioritize African-American Gullah Geechee folk in terms of, uh, and what was missing and why did you have to, to um, why did you have to act? Well, I think um, 1989 in a lot of ways was 1968 for South Carolina. I'll give you the context of that briefly. In 1989, we had the Conway movement, where a black teacher, who was also the NAACP president, was fired because he stood up for black football players who came to see him because the white coach had picked his white son. And it led to months of mass meetings in Conway, very reminiscent of the movement days. So it became our movement for a lot of young people who are now grown and gone. And we marched to Myrtle Beach. And we marched against the flag in Myrtle Beach. We marched um, over and over again. But in the midst of that, then we had the situation in the Buffalo Room in North Augusta that in 1989 was refusing to serve black people, which is amazing, but it's true. So we went, we confronted him, became a national story, and we, we closed the restaurant. At the same time, there was a swimming pool, a lake rather, in that area called Lake Richardson that didn't let black children swim in the lake, 1989 again. 
And so we took my daughter, my baby girl, who happens to be here with us now um, for COVID. She was the first black child to swim in the lake. A similar situation at the place in Saluda. So all of these are happening 21 years after 68, 20 plus years after the, the uh, Civil Rights Act of 64, and we got all this jumping. So what, what happened was Hugo came and it slowed us down. It took the focus completely off. But well, being from Charleston, I, um, Earl Schoenhoster was regional director, later Earl Schoenhoster of NAACP. At this time, I was the executive director of the NAACP for South Carolina. Without any hyperbole, we had the strongest state organization in the country among all the NAACP states because we have a confluence of talents happening to come together. Our state president was also the chairman of the board of NAACP. So we went on a tour. We rode over from Columbia to Manning. And when we got to Manning, we noticed that the food truck, the service, they were in the middle of town, but there were no black people. So I asked uh, the one brother out there, I said, man, how come no black folk out here with the Red Cross serving the community? He said, well, man, nobody's coming over here. This is used to be the Klan headquarters. Black folk not coming up here. They're down in Summerton and Remini and Davis Station, all of which I knew because I covered the whole state. So there was not a part of South Carolina had black folk. I didn't know. I said, wow, that's, that's deep. So we got in the car and went to King Street. No Red Cross service. And when they did find it, there were no black folk. I said, Red Cross has a problem. Wow. So we went, we came home to McClellanville. Ben Hooks came, the national CEO of NAACP, longtime legend and friend. He met us in Charleston. That same Marriott Hotel just got reopened and North Charleston was closed. Everything was devastated. It's hard to describe what it was like. So when we got to McClellanville, we noticed inside the, the gym, they were serving people, but we noticed one line had all the black folk and another line had all the white folk. So I asked the brother straight up and sister, I said, how come all the white folk over there and y'all over here? He said, over there, those are the folk who pre-registered and we're the ones who got to register. They're the ones getting the first stuff and we're gonna guess what's left. I said, oh, hell no. I mean, oh, excuse me. Oh, no, that's not going to work. I said, um, explain this to me. So when we got the background, what it was is that the Red Cross used local volunteers. There were no local black volunteers, weren't recruited and weren't used. So the white volunteers let the, uh, the families and the white folk know, frankly, in McClellanville, Orlando area first. And then they served the people they knew first. Same thing they told us in Manny. Well, we know them which is the same as saying, I don't know you. And so I told, got to, Dr. Hooks was there with us. And we said, that's not going to work. So we called Senator Hollings and we got him on the phone on the conference call. We met at the Air Force Base here in Charleston. He got FEMA's director on the phone, Jimmy Witt. And we told him what we found. And the quote that came out of that encounter was, while the disaster may not discriminate, the response does. And we need to make sure that the response does not discriminate against our people anymore. And out of that, really, we established a relationship with the Red Cross that eventually led, 15 years later, to training thousands of black volunteers to help with response to a Red Cross disaster. We learned, we used a lot of that during Katrina all those years later. So we pushed this, and so we ended up through the NACP starting a Hurricane Katrina relief effort targeting 
the black community across the state of South Carolina. Like now, the federal government and the state government put some dollars aside, but what we were able to do, and it didn't happen because they thought it was a good idea. We had to protest, we had to fight, we had to ask. We met with the governor at that time, it was Carroll Campbell, and we laid out a plan that was very tight and right because we knew if you get the federal dollars or the state dollars, they're gonna come behind you and they're looking to lock somebody up. We started out with that thinking. Um, we did it for over a year. We mobilized 20 plus communities across the state, significant number in my home area down in the low country. I was born, I was born in a place called Venice Point, mm -hmm. which is at the confluence of the Ashipu, Kumbahi, and Edisto Rivers. There you go. <laughs> first words were said, um, on the and, and Bennis Point. My family had 104 acres of land. We had four black families that had 500 acres of land down in that area. I came, my, my father moved us here in, in Charleston and when I was three and we spent every summer back there going forward. So that is in me. That's when people know me, they know I'm from 17 miles off the main road, um, called, a place called Bennis Point. So when we did it, we had a chance to understand both how the Red Cross was excluding us and how state and local governments were excluding us. So Marion Welch was a young rising star in the NACP who worked with me at the North Charleston branch. I was branch president. Marion was one of the people who followed me as president. I called him. We put together a team across the state made up of some NACPers and some community members, uh, but it was our response and it was our Hurricane Hugo project. And we delivered services and resources all over the state. Primary among those things we found is how the racism, the invisible part of it, makes our people invisible. So unless you have a voice and access to the power, you pe our people will not be included. So we spend a lot of our time not only taking the information to our folk, but bringing them to the power. For example, where they have all that work now where the museum is going to go, where they've developed what used to be called- um, Gazin's Wharf, Gazin's Wharf. Yeah, well, back then we called it um, across across Calhoun Street, I mean, across uh, East Bay Street. Okay. And we used to call it the bottom. It was called the bottom. Okay. And you know, anytime we got it, it's either black or bottom. So we called <laughs> it the bottom. So we went down there to tour. Those were public housing systems all over. Nothing but public housing. We saw conditions that were so horrible that we called Mayor Riley to ask him to come look at it because we couldn't believe that the city or any community would let people live like that after the storm. But also what happens, the, the poverty and the lack of resources that we have historically as a community makes our pain double in disasters. Because like right now when folk talk about sheltering in place, well, you and I got a place to shelter in, but a lot of our folk don't. They're sheltering in place now, they're in the street. And that needs to be understood. So if we aren't going to the prisons to help get people tested, we're missing a large part of our population. That's what we learned and had, had reemphasized us when we did the, the march across the state. So in that time, we were able to develop relationships that lasted a long time. Um, folk got in front of the line, instead of the back of the line in terms of building their places, getting the kind of services, but it required a statewide, statewide response that did have a headquarters above all the minutiae you get into at the bottom. Critical to this, and this is my recommendation going forward right now, I've shared this with 
Senator Kimson, that there needs to be an immediate meeting with Governor Mac McMaster. The reason that's important is because we need to have no, nothing between us and where the final power will be. And we had a relationship directly with Governor, just happened, both of them had to be Republicans back then and now. Back then it was anomaly, now it's business as usual. But uh, Governor McMaster needs to be met with, not just with members of the General Assembly. Community folk have to make sure that whatever is going to come, a lot is going to come, what's going to happen, I promise you, there are people already lined up to get it. They don't look like us, they don't like us, and they don't know us. So it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna resemble that that line or those lines at the Red Cross, huh? That's right. What's going to happen? The only way to change the lines is change the people who has have access to the lines, and they don't have to move. They don't have to go go away, but they can't keep us out of the way. And we have to be at the table because, frankly, the people who've been most devastated will be poor folk of all races and black folk of all ages and all backgrounds. And we need to understand that. Another myth that came out, and I was victim of the same myth when it first started, you know, black folk were saying because of what we knew, black people couldn't get COVID. Well, that's a lie from the pit of hell. But now, only whether you know it or not, but 39% of the cases are black people. No, I, I didn't know that. It's 39%. They put out the data Monday, the 30th. And one of my members sent it to me. DHEC has the data. I've been asking for it since it started, I wanted to validate how much it affected us. Understand we are, we are more represented in COVID infections than we are in the population, which means two things to me. One, our conditions make us more likely to be infected. Secondly, our population is higher now than it was in the last census, else we couldn't be so overrepresented. And I think that also harkens why it's so important, not only for us to get counted, but to use the count for our benefit. To get back on point, that if it's 39% in our community and it affects a profile, we need to be real clear about where they are and what can we do. Because these sicknesses and funerals they're talking about, unlike the difference in this and Hugo, is that although lives were devastated, lives were not lost in this anywhere near this number. So when a family loses somebody or the two sick ever recover completely, that economic devastation is doubled and tripled. So we need to be clear about that. Also, the infrastructure of our community is basically run by people. If they get wiped out, what happens to the infrastructure? And I'm not talking about the infrastructure the government gives us. I'm talking about everything from the churches to the meetings to where we gather how we take care of ourselves, the informal way black folk take care of themselves even now. When other folk won't do it, you have to do it yourself. Uh, the, the child care issues, the health, the elderly issues, all of those are things that, that will have a pronounced impact, more pronounced impact on my community, our community, than other communities. Everybody's going to suffer. We got to be clear about that. But when you represent four out of the 10 and your population is three out of the 10, that means that you're overrepresented all over the state. That means that the blackest places are going to have the worst cases. And we need to understand how that calls us to do something. I'll tell you another delivery service that really helped and that, frankly, we don't have the same relationship now. We're trying to rebuild it with the church, especially the black church. Because back then, 
Um, NACB and the Black Church are almost synonymous. And so when it was time to deliver the service to the day where, where, where we found ourselves going to, Black churches, Black funeral homes and funeral directors and organizations who had their own facilities, Masons, um, those people had their own standalones because what happens, our folk need to go someplace where they will be treated with respect they will be able to get straight information without the filter and that they will get the same delivery of service that everyone else does. That will not happen without us. People get, they challenge me that you don't have to have the same folk to deliver the same service. I've been here longer than most of the folk and I can tell you right now, yes, you do. If, if we're not at the table, we're on the menu and you know that. So we have to be real clear that it's up to us to make sure we insert ourselves, not with permission, they're not going to grant you permission. And they're going to also try to ask you, why are you making this about black and white? I ain't making it. I'm living it. It is about black and white. And so if I don't say it and act accordingly, I'm a fool. If I got a reality and I, that I ignore the reality, act like it doesn't exist, I'm not leading my people. I'm serving them up. And so part of that is now why you're interviewing, why your questions are so pertinent is because this doesn't have to, this shouldn't happen next week or next year or the end of this year, that meeting should be going right now. We are trying, myself and others with NAN and other organizations, we're trying to get a meeting with the governor now so that when this deal goes down, the money's about to hit the state. Um, yeah. Our yeah, churches don't yeah. even know about the, they don't even know, and we need to be real clear, I had to educate some of our folk on this last week, the money for nonprofits and organizations, small business, those are not state dollars. Mm -hmm. They're going straight to banks. Okay. And mm -hmm. without a relationship with a bank, now you're going to get left out. And that, and that education needs to be done so your timing is powerful and very necessary because I need to get the word out to my brothers and sisters in churches that these dollars are going to be gone by the time you get to them if you don't act now. Yeah. I just found out that no, no, I, the I didn't paperwork mean, I didn't will be mean, available oh. on Friday. I'm, so I'm sorry, I stepped over you. You said what's going to be available Friday? Some of the paperwork around the uh, care package, the package for churches and small businesses, et cetera, will be available on Friday at banks. You can't go in a bank now because the lobbies are closed, which makes the availability, the access to technology critically important. So we're going to start our process on Friday. I've already alerted both the state Baptist president and the local moderator about this, and our moderator has been alerting us about it. But it's not just it's not just denominations. It's every church needs to understand these dollars are going to flow, and frankly, the community needs them more because the devastation to us is more pronounced because we had less to start with. And so some people may have suffered a 30% loss. Our people are suffering 70, 80% loss, sometimes 100% loss. That's going to be very important. Where you can really help beat the drum and get the word out and encourage others to do it, the folk who have the greatest access to our community through music and song, they've got to have emergency programming that goes straight to this issue. And the same for you. Get the data, explain it, in a way that folk can grasp it and then tell them what the five steps are. I talked to our state president by telling all churches, there are five things you ought to do. We'll lay out what those five are because people can follow steps. 
If we make the conversation too nuanced and too technical, they'll think they cannot do it. And it's not as hard as we will make it out to be. We also offered to offer the service to help our churches not fold because they don't have technology. There are ways to do the virtual worship, the virtual teaching, all of that without having to worry about going into bankruptcy to do it. But we, we have to have access to folk to have them educated. So what we learned in the, the Hugo issue was having trusted workers, not just voices. Voices are fine, but every voice doesn't work. So you need to have trusted, trusted workers, the people who will go into the community, shoulder to shoulder, work with. I learned this, sister, when I was um, the state director. Uh, Majeska Simpkins, one of my heroes, a legend up in Columbia, strong sister. She explained to me why the state director of the NACP was called, at that time, the statewide man. She was the first person. She was a woman. And she was saying, because you can go places where folk cannot speak, but you can speak for them, and then they get empowered to do it. But you don't, they can't fire you the next day on the job. They can't take, come and get you off of where you work. So you have an obligation to go speak truth to power and show the folk that this is not the boogeyman. This is not the giant. This is a human being. And you can represent yourself in front of them without the retaliation. Well, some of that, sometimes that's true and sometimes that's not. But they needed to have that. So in some ways, the folk in these communities, the places where we have kept open, just our nickels and dimes primarily, are our churches. They will be critical to this process, except they're hurting too. And so there has to be a way for us to communicate with pastors and church leaders and community leaders and the whole uh, the whole gamut of what we have that represents our community. But without communication, without organization, it's going to be very difficult. And organization is critical now, not after it's over. Now, the beauty of technology, I don't fight it, I enjoy it, I love it, I think it's a gift from God. And organize without being able to see each other, like we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. And because of that, we don't have to wait until it gets really bad before we organize. We can organize now. And, and that includes, if we can't go to Columbia, a conference call. And we need to be able to talk about what happens to black people. And we don't need to be cute. We don't have to be nuanced. We ought to be direct. We know who's about to get left out. We know what's going to happen. And because we have now the largest number of black representation we've had in the state capitol, there's no reason for us not to have our voice now around what we want. And I believe that the majority of them want to hear from us about what we want. And we need to be able to articulate what that is or what those things are. Wow. Yeah, I I think this is, you already answered so many questions that I had lined up and and this is great um, because that's what I want folks to do is position themselves so they're ready to act as opposed to just being reactionary, Um, you know, and, and, and again, studying previous disasters here, the natural disasters, just seeing what was, you know, how the landscape of the peninsula shifted so great, so greatly following Hugo in the 90s. That's right. That's right. That's right. And, and so I'm, I'm, I want to help us position ourselves to protect what we do have um, and hopefully even grow our footprint, whether it be on the peninsula or wherever we are now, but, but not just in numbers, but in, in power and influence as well. Let me give an example, an antidote about what you just said. Back there in the borough, in the bottom, 
when we went to visit the house, they said that they couldn't repair so the people could move back in because it was too low, too expensive, and it was not good for anything. Remember this now, 1989, it's not good for anything. Go back there now. <laughs> you know, when they moved those people out, they never came back. They never you know came back. How much of that land got available back there? Mm-hmm. Wow. Because they were renting, yeah, but that land, the space got available after you go. Mm-hmm. And right now you got million dollar structures sitting on top of the ground where black folk used to live. And black folk were told, we can't even afford to put this back. No, it's priority. It's always about somebody to choosing what is more important and when is it more important. And we don't need to be confused about that. Right now, this is about priority. And some people are already pre-positioned to become the priority. And we have to stand up, sit down next to them and say, no, we got to share this. If we don't share this, nobody getting it. We're going to fight. I could talk to you for forever. Um, but yeah, I, I'll keep my eyes peeled with, uh, in regard to movement and anything you need, ampli- anything that requires amplification and also, um, yeah, is there anything you want to leave folk with uh, at, that, as, yeah, at this point? Don't, don't become paralyzed by the media and this information. Remember, no matter how long this lasts, it's going to end. You shouldn't start moving after it's over. We should be moving now. We should be organizing, organizing, organizing. Because... The organization creates success. I've been at this long enough to know a lot of one-offs, a lot of folk have popped up, pop-up leaders, but when it's all over, what stands the test of time and success is organization. If you're not organized, you can't move stuff. And it doesn't matter the name of the organization, it matters the principles of the organization. So um, as soon as we do pull together these first gatherings, I'll make sure to let you know but also you, you represent a voice and a position that's critical to be at the table because anybody who thinks they can represent all black people is deceiving themselves. When they used to ask me in the media, call me a black leader, I said, hold on. Black folk did not have a national convention that I know of that they voted anybody to be that leader, let alone me. So I represent my organization and I'm a leader in my organization, but I don't speak for all black folk, never tried to, never never can because we don't have one person who can be the voice for everyone, which means that the table has to have more seats. If, the, if your seat is not at the table, then bring your own, sit down, because you got to be at the table. So don't let folk tell you, well, ain't room in there for you. You tell them you in here. If you in here, come, I can't be in here. And because they don't represent your perspective, they can't because they're not you. And I've been at this, I don't have to agree with you to share the space with you because you represent a perspective that's unique, as do I. And it comes out of my experience. What I have been through shapes who I am. And the same with you. And so if I don't respect that, I can't lead my folk. I can't be effective. I think that you have to see it like I see it to have a valid, a valid voice. I don't think so. I know not. So whatever you need to do that I need to hear, you got my number, pick it up and call me. Mm-hmm. That's why my number's in my bulletin. Uh, call me because I don't need you uh, to amen, uh, especially if you're not in the church. And 
just tell me if it's if it's something you got challenges with, you don't understand the perspective, or you think I missed something because I don't have your view. I'm good with that. You just tell me. I ain't got. I'd rather you tell me. Than tell 20 people who come tell me. So just tell me, and I'm good. So you did. A, you're doing a great service. I'm looking forward to this. But trust me, we're trying to pull ourselves together right now. Starting, frankly, with the closest representatives and colleagues, the people in the churches, because as they go, so much of our community goes. And I, I don't want them to end up, all the money's come down and gone, then we stand around talking about what happened. Right. What happened is what's happening. And it's happening right now. Yeah. Well, um, thank you so much. Um, again, um, I really appreciate this. I don't take moments like this for granted. And um, thank you for your service. And I look forward to your work following this pandemic or even through, like you said, not waiting till it's over, but through this pandemic, um, I look forward to, to um, being a part of any work that you put together. Looking forward to it. Thank you, sister. Keep on pressing. I'm so glad you got a platform to help educate and motivate our people. You keep on doing it. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'll, I'll send you details about how to how to access it. Okay. All Thank right. Thank you so much.